Welcome to the Responsible Capitalist Podcast, where we help you learn to align your money with meaning. My name is Carol Sanford. I am your host for the podcast. We bring you interviews with people who help you understand how to do due diligence on the social and the financial side. Today, I'd like to talk with you a bit about how you can know if the capital that you're investing is going to really be value-adding, value-generating, or potentially value-extractive. So let's talk about what those mean differently. Um, Value-extractive is a term that uh, probably doesn't exist in the financial community, but it's really well understood because it means that when you're investing, what you're doing is working only to get something back for yourself, and generally you're willing to trade off all other stakeholders in the process. That's the most base level. It's not basic, it's the most base level we can invest from. The next level up, which we can consider as an investment of philosophy, is to be value-added. That means it ends with an ED, and it's a term which you hear a great deal in the business world. It means that you have a very narrow view. You're thinking of your business as well as potentially how you're going to work well with suppliers and work to have customers which stay with you. But the idea is spoken of to mean we are going to put in something so that we can get out what it is that we expect to get in return. So the window in the mind is fairly narrow. It includes only ourselves standing in the center with a little bit of consideration for those who supply us in order for us to be able to serve those who are our buyers. The next level up I call value adding. That means it has an ING on the end. Now I have to tell you a story about the idea of value adding and how it became value added in our culture. Procter & Gamble Lima years ago initiated the idea of value adding. In fact, Charlie Crone did, who was the chemical engineer who led the design of Lima. He was building in the mind of everyone who worked there the idea that their work was to add value to the lives of people who bought from them, not just to meet the conditions or the criteria or the standards of the customer, but to actually be changing their life more beneficially. And that that happened in every step along the way, all the way back to a supplier who was making choices and decisions that were going to affect that, cons that customer or consumer. So value adding was going from this narrow view of us and getting what we need from the supplier in order to have the buyers keep buying to thinking of everyone as being involved in the adding of value to the life of the consumer. Now, the funny part of that story is that a quite prominent professor at Harvard University, along with a few others, came and studied this Lima, Ohio new business. It was a soap business. In that process, they went around and interviewed, spent a lot of time with folks, and they kept hearing them talking about this value-adding process, but apparently they couldn't hear very well because what they came away with was an article they wrote, a series of articles in the Harvard Business Review, which talked about that the uniqueness that this particular business had was it was value-added, and because they were quite prominent professors, it became the word of choice. And of course, it's been very distressing to all the people who were inside of that Procter & Gamble system. And not long after that, they prevented, in fact, forbid anyone else to come do a tour of the system. There is another level. It is the level of value generating or regenerating. 
This is an idea which means you move from not the narrow view of value added where it's us, the supplier, and the customer, not just the value adding, which is a really important uh, step where you've now added the life of the consumer and how it is that you can enhance it and make more beneficial um, uh, enrichments to it. But you're actually thinking about all the stakeholders in the system who are affected, earth, society, all the people who work in the system, and your intention is to increase all stakeholders' capacity to evolve and to do that with their own singularity, their own essence. So you work in a way that you're really seeking to add value in a generative way. Now imagine yourself as an investor being able to make choices about that. Can I really know whether or not what I'm investing in is value extractive? Is it value added where I'm getting something back for what I put in? Is it value adding where we're actually contributing to the life of the people who buy from us? Or is it value generating where we really have stakeholders whose lives evolve and become more significant as a result of our work? In my work with corporations over 35 years, we built value generating systems. The ability to invest needs to ask these questions or else you really can't be doing the kind of due diligence that one can do to make sure that you're making a difference, that you're aligning your money with meaning. We're gonna to talk to a, um, hmm. we're gonna to talk to, uh, we're, We're going to talk today with John Fullerton. John Fullerton, you will hear talking about the idea of investing in a way that you're not just making money off of money, which is a lot of what the value degenerative process is. He doesn't use the term value-adding process, except he liked it when I suggested it might work. But he has an amazing story to tell because John lived and worked on Wall Street for the first 20 years of his life, and he did very, very well financially. But when 9-11 happened and the transition opportunity came up, he left and he founded Capital Institute. I'm going to ask him to tell us about that and to respond to how it is he assesses whether he is really making a good investment. I would really appreciate it if you would do a brief introduction of yourself, including how you would describe the work you're doing right now. Sure. Hi, Carol. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And um, uh, so I'm John Fullerton. I, uh, my background is uh, nearly 20 years at J.P. Morgan, uh, where I worked in capital markets and then in private investments. I left there in 2001 and uh, have since been exploring the challenges of sustainability and in particular the role finance and economics plays in the, at, at a systemic level. And uh, after the financial crisis of 2008, uh, I decided that uh, creating a small think tank called Capital Institute was uh, the best and highest use of my time to really do a, a deep dive into the, the, the challenges of, of um, what a sustainable economy might look like. And so I now play two roles. One is I, I do this work at Capital Institute. Uh, and secondly, I'm uh, an active um, investor with my own capital in an area that we now call impact investing. Great. I think uh, people always love to hear a bit about the pivot point for you or 
And it may not have been at a point in time, but it was certainly a, a, an arising in your thinking about why you needed to pull other thinking in besides your financial thinking. Can you describe a bit about how that happened for you? Sure. Um, it's a long story. Uh, and, and as you just said, there wasn't really a single event. Um, I didn't have the Ray Anderson spear in the chest experience. It was more of a rolling epiphany that started long before I left J.P. Morgan. Um, and I suppose I would describe it as a, a growing restlessness and a, uh, a seeming hunger for higher purpose. Uh, and, and when Morgan was acquired by Chase Manhattan Bank, it, it enabled me the chance to leave uh, with my stock options intact. And so I, I chose to do that with no real plan in my mind about what I was going to do at the ripe old age of 41. Uh, and soon thereafter, I walked into 9-11 um, and experienced that up close and personally. And that that sort of pushed me into an even deeper introspective period. And, and I found myself um, holed up in my barn reading books for for days on end and actually a period of time that extended to years. And it was in that time that I discovered the ecosystem crisis and began really questioning the role of finance and, and our current economic system in, in driving these crises. So it was, um, it, it was sort of a series of rolling epiphanies and a series of books that I read that uh, my, my separation from Wall Street kind of provided the space and, and uh, open-mindedness to explore in a way that I had never done prior to that. I think it might be helpful to do just another couple of minutes on Capital Institute uh, as a think tank. It also has uh, some pretty practical field work involved that you are making available. Talk about what you mean by think tank in this sense and how you're going about it. Sure. So um, the, the core question we're wrestling with is the modern paradigm of exponential growth on a finite planet. Um, the, um, the belief that we have is that the financial system, not, not the bad behavior that we've all become accustomed to ranting about, but, but at a much uh, more fundamental level, the exponential function that is at the foundation of finance, uh, compound interest, compound financial returns, is the fuel or the or the framework that the entire economy responds to, and given that the um, economy remains highly material throughput intensive, even if we're making it less so over time, um, there is a fundamental conflict between um, that exponential function and the physical reality of a finite planet. And, and so we're looking at that challenge through the lens of finance and particularly through the lens of real investment uh, and the assumption that we can compound investment returns indefinitely, growing the stock of financial capital indefinitely. Um, and, and so that's really the question we're wrestling with. And the way we're going about that is both through a conventional, let's call it academic inquiry, and we work very closely with um, uh, thinkers, scientists from many disciplines outside of finance and economics in particular, ecologists, biologists, physicists, systems, um, system scientists in particular, um, psychologists, 
And then at the same time, we try to anchor our work and thinking in practical uh, experiments that are happening on the ground. And what we found is that there is a large group of entrepreneurs who intuitively get this conflict that we're focused on and, and are experimenting with alternative models of, of building businesses and running enterprises, both business and both for-profit and non-for-profit that are manifesting the, the solutions to the, to these challenges, even if they don't have a conceptual framework in their mind that they're using. And so we have this theory and practice balance and, and these practical examples uh, started with some of my own investment projects and then have expanded uh, through the work of my colleague, Susan Arterian Chang, into a whole program or <clears throat> project we call our field guide to investing in a regenerative economy. And, um, and so it's really through the insights of the entrepreneurs that we get many of the insights that then become the, um, the components of this conceptual framework that we're trying to develop. And, and we work with um, uh, some of the best thought leaders around economy that we can find, including yours truly, Carol Sanford. <laughs> I think of people who are seeking to make a real change in how they do anything as being principle-driven or principle-managed. Like, I'm wondering what kind of principles you hold in your mind as you seek to do work. And that can be everything from the research work you do to the practical work with the field guide to level three investing. There are probably a set of two or three core principles that you reference. Am I right about that? And could you articulate those? Yeah, I'll try. Um, I, you know, I think I think one leaps to mind. I, I don't have on a piece of paper a set of principles written down. Um, maybe we should. Um, but in in responding to and listening to your question, certainly the first thing that leaps into my mind is the principle of um, seeking to tell the truth. And um, and I don't mean truth in a literal sense, like I have the truth, but rather um, recognizing where our current system is not telling the truth and, and pursuing in a sort of dogged, um, relentless fashion, the, the questions that need to be asked um, around the most important challenges really ever to have uh, that, that, that civilization has ever faced, because I believe we're, we're facing somewhat of an existential crisis where our economic system, despite all of its great many benefits, has uh, some assumptions around it. Most importantly, this assumption of the ability for it to expand exponentially indefinitely into the future um, has the seeds of our destruction within it. And so questioning those assumptions uh, and speaking the truth about the implications is um, is really at the center of, of what we're doing. And, and therefore, in the portion of my own investing activity that I, that I increasingly um, am trying to direct intentionally in new directions, um, uh, I try to be, I try to, to hold myself uh, up to that same standard and, and 
and question whether this investment activity is genuinely going to contribute to solving the issues that are that we're wrestling with. And and that's usually much harder said than done. Capital I've found often gets us into trouble. And uh, in order for investment to generate financial returns, uh, more often than not, it comes with um, uh, some baggage that is, um, you know, we prefer not to, not to, to, to be honest about or open about. There is, um, you have some experience, uh, five years or so going the path you're going now, but another 20 years before that, and probably some, uh, even before that, as you were in school and learning. And I find that people who have a good track record like you do and have been very inventive, in fact, I would call you visionary in what you're doing, have run into some potholes along the way. They can, can give us advice or what you might call caveats about mm. trying to bring about either change and particularly bring about change in capital markets. Uh, and one other thing I would add to that just for you to comment on is there is now the idea of impact investing has gotten really popular, we might say. It's like trending somewhere. Uh, and I see lots of things put out which I feel like are maybe what you might call just a substitute for the worst bad things and don't necessarily, as you just said, work at the base of what it would take to make a difference. Given your experience in thinking about how to bring about change and how to shift particularly capital markets, what caveats would you provide based on your learning? Um, be patient. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think that the longer I've been at this change business, uh, the more humble I've become about how difficult system change really is. And, um, and, and I think the inertia for the system to continue as it is, is unbelievably powerful. And, um, you know, one would have thought that the financial crisis would trigger profound change. And um, I think if we're honest, uh, the system has been tweaked here and there. Uh, some fortunes have been gained and lost. A lot of pain has been incurred by many, many, many people. But the system is pretty much the same as it was before the crisis. And, uh, you know, we've had an interesting um, debate on our, on our blog about resiliency and whether resiliency is the be-all and end-all. And uh, our mutual friend, uh, Bill Reese, who is the co-creator of the Ecological Footprint, pointed out, as only he can, that there is good and bad resiliency. And certainly the financial system has exhibited some very powerful resiliency, but in a way that you know, perpetuates many of the current problems of the, of the existing financial system. So, you know, I think the principal lesson learned is to be extremely humble and realistic about how difficult this system shift challenge is. And, um, you know, for our, for our efforts and frustrations and feeling of uh, futility, the one approach that, that I keep coming back to and that resonates and that I increasingly see others talking about is the power of storytelling. We rise above kind of an analytical problem, solution, diagnosis, you know, here's the diagnosis and here's the answer. It's much more about shifting the way we think about 
the system and and uh, my colleague Susan's uh, real skill is in storytelling. We're you know we're we're sort of financial architects trying to re-architect the global economy, and the tool we've chosen to do that is through storytelling. And it seems soft and wishy, but uh, I'm convinced that um, you know somehow grabbing people not not through arguing more strongly about facts, but through um, helping to to drive the kind of a rolling epiphanies that I've personally experienced is probably the the most likely pathway to cause that to happen. And that's that's a rest of your lifetime kind of work plan, not a three year um, deliverable type of a work plan. So the title of this podcast is The Responsible Capitalist. And I have quite a few people who listen to this who are moving into either their own new work in in trying to investing to make a difference or trying to step up their game to put more of their money in. And there's a lot of trepidation in that process. And if for no other reason, it's just unfamiliar. If you were going to give advice about your own crossing of that boundary, and, and I know you're a very humble person, so you don't you don't have a sense of being the world's greatest expert, but you have experience. And if you were going to advise someone who either stepping into that stream or trying to get deeper, let's say at least waist deep in that stream, what would you recommend to them? Hmm. Um, well, I think I think the first thing probably is that one needs to decide how much of their time and energy they're, they're willing to invest in the process. And um, there's no question in my mind that even for an experienced investor, uh, this is an all-in all proposition. And so either you decide to devote you know, significant amounts of your own time and energy to it, or you need to hire someone or find an advisor who is doing that. Uh, this is not a casual spectator sport. And and that's true of all investment, by the way, but this is particularly true um, in this case. I think the second bit of advice is that there is no quick um, wins. Um, you know, any, any early success is probably as much attributable to luck as skill, but it's a, it's a very long-term uh, commitment that, one must make. And then the third thing I would say, and, and this I've experienced very directly, is that if one does um, invest oneself personally in this and think about it the way I think it has to be thought of, which is in a holistic way, the, the, the reality is that the rewards will come much more from the non-financial returns as from the, any numbers on a spreadsheet. And, um, and that doesn't mean that you can't earn financial returns. It just means that the, the true um, wealth creation of this process uh, will, will overwhelm and dwarf the difference between 5% return or 15% return on any given investments. And, and I think one of the real problems with conventional investing is that to the asset owner, it all gets translate back, translated back in a quarterly spreadsheet and risk of return. It's all abstractions. And, you know, the, the difference between that, that value creation 
and the transformation that I've experienced myself and others, you know, literally sitting by the side of a river talking about what's important to you as part of an investment project that we're doing on the grasslands, it's just, it's just not comparable. So, um, you know, my, my, my message would be find an issue you're passionate about, uh, dig in and get truly personally invested, not just invested with your money. And, um, and the returns are, are, uh, are going to be way bigger than you ever imagined. And one last question. People will want to know more as we go through time about what Capital Institute is doing, what you're doing. What is the best way for them to connect or to, and I don't know if they would follow questions, but do you have newsletters? What, what do you have that people could join? Yeah, we, we have a, a monthly newsletter. And um, if you go to capitalinstitute.org, you can sign up uh, very easily for that. And um, with my, my colleague, Emily Walsh, is an active social media uh, communicators. So we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. Uh, I've got a LinkedIn account. And um, so whatever whatever way is easiest for you, but um, probably the, the most surefire method is to just go to our website and sign up on our distribution list. And you'll be sure to get all of the, all of the information we send out. And, and we certainly welcome people to engage with us uh, on the website. Uh, I write a monthly blog that is on the website as well as in syndicated outside of Capital Institute. Uh, and it's a, it's a good place where, where we can connect in a more personal way with people around the ideas that we're proposing. So thank you for asking. Capitalinstitute.org. So thank you so much, John. I appreciate you taking the time. As you know, I have enormous respect for what you do and uh, so much so that I ask you to write the forward to my book. And again, thank you for doing that. Well, so, <laughs> Well, Carol, it's a, as you know, it's a privilege and an honor to, to be working with you, and, and uh, it certainly was a privilege to, for you to ask me to, to write the forward to your book. It was, it was one of the more enjoyable things I've done, so thank you for that. Great, and we will uh, catch up in another arena, but I'll say goodbye for now. Okay, very good. I'm so happy to have had John Fullerton here with us, and I do hope that you will go to the capitalinstitute.org's website and check out what they are doing in more depth. Also, I hope you'll come find us on carolsanford.com. One of the things you'll find there is new mastery groups that we're running in several cities around the United States. They are groups where people who are investing come together to learn more about how to do the due diligence on the social side as well as the financial side and to engage with one another in being able to vet their investments. You can find more about that as well as other podcasts on carolsanford.com. And I hope to see you here again next time.